Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Securities, Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon. Uh, today, uh, all our listeners, you guys are going to love our guest. Uh, he's been in the gaming industry for a very long time. We're honored to have Tom Dusenberry join us. He has spent over 30 years of his career in interactive entertainment. He's been a very senior executive. He was the CEO of Hasbro Interactive, Games.com, and Atari, to name a few. He's currently the CEO of Dusenberry Entertainment. He's closely associated with a lot of great games you guys have probably all heard about, like Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit, Frogger, Star Wars, Roller Coaster Tycoon, to name a couple. And uh, we're lucky to have him here. So, Tom, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's, um, you know, I have to tell you in the cybersecurity industry, if you if you come to our office, uh, you'll invariably find a couple engineers on their console gaming away. So there'll be a lot of people interested in the wizardry that you brought to the table. I guess you to start off with, are you a gamer yourself? I am. I'm a, I'm a guy who absolutely loves games. So I love to play games as much as to make the business of games happen. Is, was that a childhood passion or did that develop with uh, your corporate career? I've, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed games and I've been able to take any scenario and turn it into a game one way or another. So it was kind of a natural fit for me to, to go into this industry. So what's your favorite game? The, uh, you know, the, you, you asked that, that's a really complicated question for as, as long <laughs> as I've been around. I would say the my favorite game of all time, because it's been with me and my family, and my family plays it all the time, is actually a dice game called Can't Stop. And uh, and the reason I like that is it's a really uh, it's a it's a product that brings everybody together, and it's highly uh, interactive, uh, and it's a lot of fun for my family. But uh, for me, it was kind of depending on the different period of time where I had a, a favorite game. So like during the Atari era, I truly loved Frogger. And I, and I was almost addicted to it. I was just playing it nonstop. And uh, so to me, that was kind of a defining product. And then when we moved on uh, to the Sega uh, era, uh, you know, I really loved Sonic the Hedgehog. And it, it was a really special game as oh, well. Yeah, I remember that game. And then, and then you probably remember the first uh, Nintendo system, you know, the uh, 007 GoldenEye came out. And that, that was just an amazing shoot 'em up type of a game. Oh yeah, the, the graphics on that were really good for its time. It really was, and and so that was spectacular from an interactive point of view. And then, you know, during the PC era, clearly uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon was a very special product for me personally from a play point of view. But it really did well in the marketplace. And uh, and then, you know, of course, I got into NASCAR, so I did a lot of different type of racing games. So I love Forza, uh, and I love my NASCAR game. And currently, I'm playing a lot of mobile games. And my favorite game right now is a game called. Uh, a pyramid puzzle, and it is in the FanDuel face-off area, and it's an addictive uh, game that I just seem to go back to every single day. So it's got that sticky feature that you know brings you back over and over. And the reason I think I like the game so much is it's very quick uh, and it's easy to play, but it's got very uh, uh, sophisticated strategic elements to it. And uh, so you can't only anticipate the move that you're doing right now, but you've got to anticipate moves three, four, five moves ahead of time to be able to make the puzzle un unfold. So, you know, I, I love games. I, I love playing all types of games. And uh, as I just told you, you know, it depends on the genre or the era. And then, you know, I can tell you a game that was probably special. For me. Well, you know, uh, 
I we're all curious. Like we've seen, uh, you started off with the uh, Atari era. I don't know how many of our audience might actually remember that, but I remember that was there was Atari and television, Magnavox. There were there were a whole TRS eighty was out back then. Those games did not have the sophistication of the games of today. Uh, and you used a word just a minute ago, simple. Those games were very simple. But whereas I look at some of the games today, they can be very complex from a control perspective and learning how to even uh, learning how to play it. But what else? And they still become really popular. So what? What key elements does a game need to have to have that stickiness, to be addicting, to to want you to engage in it? For me, you know, being in the industry my entire career, it really always comes down to one thing, and that is it's all about the fun. And uh, and so and and you know, d d being able to develop fun is a really really hard thing to do, uh, and it's almost like an art form. And uh, so depending on what, you know, what platform you're on, what your capabilities are, if you can deliver a fun game, it can be a great experience. Remember back to when the phones first came out and you had Nokia and they were able to bring out Snake. Yes. Uh, although that was as basic of a game as you could possibly get, it was fun. So it was all about the fun. So to me, you know, what you do from a game point of view is, is that you provide a fun element from a design point of view and then you use whatever the technology is at the time to maximize what that experience is. Does does simplicity have a play in this? And I guess I'm asking a selfish question because I get uh, like I've tried to play games with my sons and they're like clicking away like crazy and I can barely even get off the launch pad. <laughs> and I'm like, how, <laughs> how does this work? Whereas uh, Pac-Man was easy, it was one joystick and you could just move her around. <laughs> I think that, that if you were patient with your son and tried to play the game, I think you would find the same elements. And that is the game industry really is step and repeat. And what they do is they teach you a new, uh, a new type of game element that you need to be able to learn. And they show it to you in many different scenarios until you really get it good. And then they add on to that as well. So if you, your son or your child is really good at something, they come in and they're all of a sudden going to level seven right off the bat. It's kind yeah. of overwhelming from your point of view, but I think if you went through the process that they went through, you would find that it was broken down in pretty simple steps, and it was step and repeat, step and repeat until they got to the point that they were at. I would say the other thing that has just been amazing in the game industry is, is that now it's as popular to be able to watch somebody playing a game as it is to be able to play the game themselves, and that's really through Twitch. And what has happened is, is that you have an opportunity with a community to go in and watch the best of the best being able to play a game in that highly immersive, highly story-driven experience. So a lot of people would prefer seeing the best of the best play than actually trying to fumble through it like you have. And even for me, like when Fortnite came out, my wife and I would actually go to Twitch and watch the Fortnite tournaments because it's just so exciting because it happened very quickly and you could get in very engaged in it. So... I do think simplicity is really important, and I do think it's still a key part of the game business. But as you said, it's gotten very uh, sophisticated because of the immersive storytelling and experiences you get from the digital. Uh, yeah, and, and and you're absolutely right. I, I see. Uh, I've seen both my sons get on Twitch or even on YouTube, where people have recorded gaming sessions. Right. And they get onto this, and I and you know again. Um, 
I date myself to uh, a kid of the 70s. <laughs> and it's kind of strange for me because we didn't have that when we were growing up. Uh, but I'm like, why do you want to watch somebody play a video game when you could be out playing or be interactive yourself? But apparently there, you're right. There is a, there's some factor there that is very, very enticing. To, to yeah, and I think that, you know, the, the way that you, you need to look at the game industry in today's world is, is that if you take TV, you take movies, you take books, you take music, and you take the toy industry and put them all together, they're not as big as the interactive game industry because today it's a $200 billion industry. So it's very vast from a point of view of who it reaches and how it reaches that market. And today, the average player of a male playing a game is 37 years old, and the average age of a female playing the game is 44 years old. So, you know, what that really says is that it transcends all different types of generations from a point of view of what the play is. Now, granted, if you're in the AARP section, which happened to announce two weeks ago that the biggest activity that they have on their site is playing games, they're going to be playing things like bridge and hearts and those types of things. And you get down to the kids and they're going to be playing Super Mario and, and other types of those type of games. Right. So today there's games for everybody. And, you know, if you think about it, it transcends, you know, our market from a point of view that the number one movie in the in the market right now happens to be Mario Brothers uh, movie. Yeah, it is. You know, there's one topic on our podcast that's come up a couple times, and, and it's uh, it's a tenant of doing business. It's called Blue Ocean Strategy. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not. It's, yeah, well, somebody at Harvard came out with it. And what the long story short of it is, is that for a given industry, when a new player comes into the space, if they innovate enough to where they change the cost and the value of whatever they're putting out there, they create their own audience. They create their own market. And so their competition becomes irrelevant. And... When I look at the gaming industry and we turn back to the clock to the Atari days, I'm, you know, this is 1980, 1981, 82. They were able to bring to market and be immensely successful with a console that costs hundreds of dollars at the time, which was a lot of money back then. And cartridges were 30, 35 bucks. How did you how did you guys gamble and create that market? Like what was the impetus of it in an era when games were never that expensive? Well, it, 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 it's a great point because it was a turning point for the industry from a point of view that all of the toys and games were really under ten dollars up until interactive entertainment or Atari came yeah. along. And Atari didn't consider itself part of the toy and game industry. It considered itself part of the consumer electronic industry. So it positioned itself in a different way. And okay. they, and so their games that came out, you know, were at 30 bucks, which would seem kind of expensive at the time. Uh, but it seemed for the value, consumers were really behind it. The, the reason the Atari uh, was so successful was the fact that it allowed anybody that could, do, could reverse engineer the Atari system to be able to, develop software so that there were no restrictions, there was no governance whatsoever, and there's no licensing fees. That was great from a point of view of what the growth opportunity was, but because of that 
mistake in the business structure of not you know defining and putting quality product out it collapsed in, in its own success and you know it was amazing to me because i was part of parker brothers and we went from zero to 150 million dollars in 18 months and we went from 150 wow. million dollars back to zero in less than a year and uh, it was just the curve was just amazing on going up and going down because of the collapse was just so significant and and, the, and you're saying the collapse happened because Atari had not put all those controls in on a quality product. So the market was flooded with games in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then so what happened after that was Nintendo came along, right? And Nintendo had a very strict policy. So you had to go and you had to be approved by Nintendo to be able to bring your product to the marketplace. And yep. for a big supporter like myself or EA or Activision, we could get up to five titles that we could come out with. And less, you know, okay. this other manufacturer might get two, right? So they were very much controlling what the market was. And then they had a rigorous QA process that you had to go through. To be, and once you were approved, and then they did all manufacturing for the third-party publishers. So they were complete control of the hardware and the software that was going into the marketplace. And look at them today. They're, you know, multi-billion dollar business. Yeah, it's, it's uh, back in vogue because... Uh, I remember that collapse. It was for a while. Everybody had an Atari system, and then everybody got off of them and forgot about the whole darn thing. And now that you mention it, there were a lot of junk titles that came out. There was a lot of garbage that was out there. But I did not realize that that's what led to the collapse. And that's that's a very interesting case study for as a from an entrepreneur perspective to look at that and say, you know, what can go wrong and, and you look at uh, apple they've probably followed this it's a closed system and and they control the quality of what they deliver to the market and maybe that's a big reason for uh likability or stickiness of their products that are, that are out there right exactly so you started i mean having worked at parker brothers atari these fabulous companies that that the iconic names you started your own firm. What what was the impetus for doing that? I'm sure you could have stayed on with anybody you wanted to stay on with. Yeah, I uh, I had a very successful uh, experience with Hasbro and with Hasbro Interactive, and, uh, and and had a nice exit. And so with that, it was you know I was in a position where my two boys were 12 and six years old, and it was time to kind of focus on them, and. Uh, I also wanted to really focus in the mobile entertainment area, and most other companies didn't want to focus on that at the time because, you know, Apple hadn't come along, and and so I was really focused in that area. So to me, it was a, it was a lifestyle thing that really worked well, and I didn't retire. What I did is I converted to do some very entertainment where I ran my own projects and, you know, and had my own team with me. And for the first 10 years, when I first started as an entrepreneur, I really focused on mobile entertainment, and I built and rolled up four different companies. So, you know, that, that was a really good period for me. And then it led to uh, coming into the iPhone and the Android period of time. And that was all of a sudden a different way to look at things from a licensing perspective. Uh, so, and then uh, because I have a passion for racing, I was given the opportunity to go down and work directly with NASCAR to build the NASCAR Heat uh, interactive entertainment oh. business. And uh, so that was a really fun experience. You know, my wife and I got to move down to Charlotte and we lived in downtown Charlotte. And over a three year period of time, we built this, you know, amazing uh, uh, product for for NASCAR. 
so you know th those are the types of lifestyle things that i've done and then today now what i'm doing is i'm really focusing on the creative process of games so i'm really focused on the story you know how it works from a design point of view and what the structure is to give launch to what the products are so i guess i'm to the point now that you know i kind of do what i want to do that's the dream i think a lot of people want would love to be in that position and you're focusing on the process walk us through that you know it i we look at i mean uh pick any game out there whether it's fortnite grand theft auto anything with a huge storyline to it it seems like it's a lot more than coding there's there's a lot going on with this process how does it start is is someone writing a screenplay quote unquote for for the game yeah pretty much you know the like I, i'm uh, designing a, a new mobile trivia game right now and so i'm you know i'm defining what that means and what the user experience is and so i'm working with a, a young game designer and so we're kind of partnering on this but just to get the game design doc for a trivia game it's 19 pages and uh, so what you have to do is you have to, you know, from, a, from my point of view, I'm, I'm the inventor and I'm the vision behind it. And so these are the things that I want to do with the market. And these are the things that I want the players to be able to do. And then my game designer says, OK, if you're going to do that, these are the things that are required to be able to make that happen. And, and a lot of it comes down to leveling. Right. And so you have to have game design so that if you and I are both playing with each other, you're having a good experience. And so am I. So we need to really understand, you know, what are what the different player circumstances are and then be able to provide the right technology support to be able to make a great experience for both you and I. So you're combining there's a storyboard that's going to take place, quote unquote. There's the coding part of it, the artwork. How is, is that? How does yeah. that come? So for me, for me, we're not we're not to that point yet. So we're 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 in the design phase. So you know we've gone from creation and and story and vision to now okay, what does it really mean? And so we design the the specifics of what that product is. That then goes to our development team, and our development team then are you know you've got you've got your producer who's responsible for then making it happen. But he's got coders, he's got animators, he's got artists. Uh, and he's got designers that are doing level design as well to be able to make uh, the, the product happen from a development point of view. Is From what you're describing, it sounds a lot of, very similar to the production of a film in many aspects. It, it, it is in many aspects, but the, the one big difference is, is that there's never an end to a successful game in today's market. And the reason that is, is just like what you talked about earlier, and that is that if you can build a game that's fun and successful and you find an audience, the most important thing you can do is keep that audience. So you need to continue to feed that audience. So in the game world, you talk about storytelling and creation, you talk about design, you talk about development, and then you get to launch, right? So we're under control up to this point. Once we launch, now we've got the consumers that are giving us data and analytics telling us how the game works, where the whole hangups are, the ads that they don't like. And so we continue on from a point of view of what we call live ops. And so the live ops team then continues to let the product leave, lead, live and breathe. And we continue to add new content and new exciting things to be able to you know, acquire new customers and then retain the customers that we have. How important is 
in the design phase, thinking about creating that sense of community? Is that even more important in some respects than the experience of the game itself, or or it becomes a part of the experience, I should say? They they, they really go hand in hand, um, and, and and you know, to, to me, to be to make a successful game, you have to have two things: one, a fun game, and two, is you have to have an audience, and they really need to work to be able to work together. So once the game goes into the marketplace, to me, the audience owns the game, and they're giving us feedback, and they're doing that by wanting to continue to play it, or they don't want to play it. Or they play it up to you know certain level and then they quit it and so there to me there must be a roadblock there so we got to go back and redesign that so that we can get them to continue on and then you know you've got to have incentives and sweepstakes and all the other marketing features that continue to you know encourage that audience to come back and uh, and you know look at ads. Yeah, it, it's always amazing to me that when I look around some of these games, there is a huge community built up around them. There's players at players markets for lack of a better term or they're hosting their own servers there's people on them all the time and, and it really becomes a, a following um, that sense of community I mean it rivals any other community on the internet if you will yeah, and to, you know, to quantify that, we saw a year ago there there was a study that asked 15-year-olds if they would rather go to a League of Legends championship or to go to the to Super Bowl, and 60% would rather go to a League of Legends championship than to be able to go to the Super Bowl. Well, so I think that you're really seeing a turning point, and that means that people uh, have such it, it, the game specifically would be like League of Legends, and it has 125 million people in its community. So when it gets down to a world championship, it, it can actually take the Barclay Center in, in Brooklyn and have it full 12 straight days in a row for the tournament leading up to what the final championship is. And what we're finding today is, is that, you know, people are making money by being professional game players. But in, more importantly, you know, you've got people that are, uh, you know, they're coaches to, to players. And so there's an entire community of just enhancing gameplay experiences from the, from the player perspective. Well, a lot of these games have become franchises uh, in the truest sense. Is how has that affected innovation in the industry? In your industry? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a negative to tell you the truth. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, I just saw a study, and that ninety-eight out of the top one hundred games are franchise, so they have a brand or something already. So, Call of Duty, Fortnite, you know, uh, uh, Apex Legends, all that kind of stuff. And, and those are great, and they have great communities, but you'll also see that the versus prior years, there's so many less new products that come into the marketplace. And the reason is, is that they would rather give you an extended version of Call of Duty to keep you in that franchise yeah. than to bring yeah. out something else or something new. And uh, so that, you know, to, to me, on the one hand, it's great because our industry has gotten that big. But on the other hand, to break through into the, at least the top 100 is very challenging these days because it's dominated by, you know, huge IP. Speaking of IP, how will AI play its role here? What will it do to the gaming experience? I think it'll uh, it'll have a profound positive impact ultimately, and, and for like me specifically, who likes to do trivia games, I'm beyond excited about the possibilities of being able to use AI from a point of view of content development and content delivery to the consumer. So, you know, one of the issues you always have with trivia is, is that it's really expensive to have unlimited amounts of content. Maybe AI has answered that question for us. 
Yeah, play against Chat GPT. That would be interesting. Right. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, they've gotten. Uh, who was the chess champion that got beat by IBM's uh, Big Blue? So I guess it's gone a long way. <laughs> it's come a real long way. But. Yeah, um, <laughs> Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we're seeing it transform our industry. I mean, the pattern recognition capabilities with AI are phenomenal. And uh, some of the patterns that it's able to find for us as humans, they're not as obvious. And that's what makes it, at least in cybersecurity, that makes it very interesting for us. Uh, I guess the same would apply in the gaming industry. If you can uh, find players patterned approaches, you could probably create scenarios on the fly that disrupt those. And and that could make it a very, very interesting game in, in, yeah. in some respect. Let me uh, switch to you know a little bit of criticism that we've seen in the media, or there's been claims made about, especially with the shoot 'em up games, that they're leading to more violence. Do you have any thoughts or opinions or any insights you can give us on that? Well, I, I, you know, certainly am not in, in favor of any violence or anything like that. But I, and I also think that for me, the vast majority of people that play games, there's a time and a place for games. Uh, there is going to be a small amount of people that probably go, you know, well beyond what the expectation and what the fun factor would be. But I don't know if this difference is between a game or being able to watch a very violent movie or, you know, some other experience and uh, to be able to see something like that. So I, um, I think that we as an industry always have to be very concerned about anything that's violent. Uh, and I think that we always have to do everything we can from a safeguard perspective. But I, I also don't think that the games industry should be isolated out as a specific area where that violence is, is being initially created because there's other places that they can see that violence as well. That's very true. Uh, there's, there's the outlets for violence are numerous. Right. I think where they um, the one comment and I forget the name of the gentleman. He's from West Point. He's a military psychologist. And um, the point that he made, if you Google military, you'll you'll he's one of the first people that comes up. Uh, he talks about that in some of the shoot 'em up games that, you know, you have a artificial gun and you're picking out your targets and it becomes conditioning into the person and he said that's really what we do in the marine corps to tra train our soldiers as well so without knowing it we're training kids to to react and and to take an action based on a visual uh scene that they see and which is exactly what we do in the military and i think that's where that comment came from yeah i don't dispute that i uh, you know as I said, there's a time and a place for everybody. And I'd say, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people yeah. who play those games are well balanced enough to know that, you know, they can't take a physical action against another human being. So I know we're uh, running short on time here, and I wanted to get to this question because it's going to be of interest to a lot of our listeners as well, is that, you know, you started life in Des Moines, Iowa, right? And, uh, you worked on the loading docks at Parker Brothers and eventually became the CEO of the company. So for those kids out there who have this notion of a dream uh, and they're trying to pursue it, what is your advice as a, a highly successful person to that group? Yeah, so um, 
this it, this is a really important subject for me, and that is that I really truly started at the very bottom, and 22 years later, I was at the very top. And to me, the most important thing is is that you need to work really hard, and, and that was the difference maker in my career was is that I felt that I could always outwork other people, and uh, so do the extra step, you know, make sure that you're 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 making sure that you're a professional in everything that you possibly do. But the other thing I would say is is that in life sometimes change makes great opportunity and for me if you looked at my career you know i was able to go from manufacturing to be able to go to sales to be able to go to marketing and be able to go to product development the reason i did that was each of those times the company was sold to somebody else and i was able to reinvent myself to somebody and i'm in a unique situation because i was literally a subordinate to somebody who then became a peer and then became a supervisor to that one person so to see how that worked was just, you know, it was really an amazing experience for me to be able to go through, but it was all about working hard and making sure that you have mutual respect for your team as well. And that is that if you start out as a subordinate and then become a superior at some point, that doesn't mean that the person that you've leapfrogged isn't a really good, high quality person. It just means that you have been able to do something that was extraordinary to get to that position. So for me, I guess at the end is it all came down to hard work and it all came down to really enjoying the people that you're with and, you know, and, and, and celebrating victories. Fantastic. Well, Tom, we're at the end here. I wanted to give you a couple minutes uh, to plug anything you'd like to let our audience know, inform them of whatever you would like to inform them of anything coming up here that well, thank you. And, and and for me, you know, I'm always looking for innovation and creativity, and I'm really attracted to the 20 and 30 and 40 year old market because you're in the prime market right now. So uh, Duesenberry Entertainment is a product licensing agency. And so if you have new innovation and new ideas that need help to be able to get to the marketplace, I would love for you to reach out to me. So you can find me at DusenberryEntertainment.com and my email address is Tom at TomDusenberry.com. And I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to hear what your ideas are all about. Well, don't be surprised if you actually get some uh, reach outs at this point. That, that's Great. fantastic. I, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, very technical people that listen, excellent developers. So I'm sure there's, uh, and there's a lot of game players. So I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if someone has an idea that's been percolating in their mind. Oh, great. And uh, just to wrap up, you know, from my point of view, remember one thing, it's all about the fun. Very well said. Thank you, Tom, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much.